All right, welcome to community-based pharmacy practice. This week, you'll be hearing from various pharmacy leaders regarding opportunities and challenges facing community-based pharmacy practice. In today's interview, I'm pleased to welcome Scott Knorr, Executive Vice President and CEO from the American Pharmacists Association. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for all the contributions you've um, given to this program and to programs like this around the country. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. And, you know, I still consider myself an Ohioan uh, after being at Cleveland Clinic for nine and a half years. Awesome. Um, so I'd like to begin with getting to know more about your background and your current position at APHA. So tell me how you got where you are and a little bit about what you do now. Yeah, well, it's, I'll try not to make too long story because I'm old. So how I got where I am, you know, took a while. But, uh, you know, recently, especially with your students there in Ohio, I was a Cleveland Clinic's chief pharmacy officer for nine and a half years. I am an HSPA grad. Well, you, we didn't call it HSPAs or HSPALs. Back then, I was a management resident with Harold Godwin at Kansas, who's an Ohio State grad. Um, and, uh, you know, I really thought my job at the Cleveland Clinic was the best job in the world for what I did. And it probably was. To be a chief pharmacy officer at an internationally recognized major academic medical center, you know, with hospitals in Abu Dhabi and building in London, and really a global impact and i mean everyone cares what the cleveland clinic's doing right um you know I, I was able to get my voice out in the media i advocated hard i worked really close with the ohio farmers association antonio chacha and, and the gang uh just like ohio state did you know we sent doctors down to testify for things um but you know i think i wasn't looking for a job um having said that i, I talked to a lot of residents and i mentor people and I have some universal truths, uh, you know, that I talk about. Uh, some of my residents uh, give me a hard time to call them Scottisms. I, I think they're universal truths. But one of them I say, and it doesn't really impact in the, that career stage, but it does if you're a chief pharmacy officer, don't forget where your paycheck comes from, right? Because right. I love being involved with uh, professional pharmacy organizations. I loved uh, that Toby Cosgrove, the former CEO, gave me a long leash in the media. But that wasn't my day job, right? We had to get drugs safely and effectively patients and, and, and have good clinical services. So, so you know, I never forgot where a paycheck comes from. I still paid attention to the clinic. Some people, they're all oh, the president of ASHP or something. Guess what? You know, when they get off the board, they get fired because they were ignoring, you know, where their paycheck came from. So when APHA called, they recruited me. Uh, I wasn't looking for a job. I thought, hmm, how cool would that be if my paycheck came from the things I enjoy doing the most, that's advocating for the profession, driving practice for it. Uh, so, so that's why uh, I said yes, uh, because I thought, the other thing I really wrestled, because uh, I'll tell you, Dana, I, I was very happy. I think I made an impact on the world. You know, some of the first IV robotics, I mean, so much stuff, automation, technology, practice advancement, um, and, I, and, and in the media, you know, I thought, at the Cleveland Clinic, I had a big pulpit. No one cared what Scott Knorr thought. They all cared what the chief pharmacy officer at the Cleveland Clinic thought. Everyone yeah. returned my phone call. And I thought I was doing the best for society I could. And then uh, I thought here at APHA, I can actually make a bigger difference for, it's all about patients, right? We're pharmacists, we look through that lens, but I can have a bigger impact on patient care and the practice of pharmacy full-time doing an APHA who represents all pharmacists. Yeah, that's that's an amazing perspective. It's something I've never have thought of because you know, being at the Cleveland Clinic, you'd think you'd have this huge impact in patient care, but an even larger impact at APHA. So that's that's great. 
Tell me a little bit about what you do um, at APHA and your role for um, APHA. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what any uh, CEO does, you know, and it's really figure out where you're going and then getting the team along, right? It's having vision and figure mm-hmm. out where the profession needs to go and then implement it. And, and Dana, I, um, when I was young, I'm definitely not young, I always thought vision, and this is for, for our residents here, I, I thought vision was like an inherited trait, right? Steve Jobs had vision, and he did, and maybe inherited for him. But, uh, right. you know, I mean, Bezos and, you know, any of the people that start, you know, huge companies. But I found over time that vision is really, it's just, it's pattern recognition. Okay, that's all it is. Okay, everybody, you're getting the secret to vision. And it's, it's taking data points, right? It's just, when you, you hear this here, you see that, and all of a sudden, it's pattern recognition patterns come, you know, and you see what's going on right. in our industries and you see what we need to do with healthcare. And it just becomes clear, you know? So, and how do you get that? I mean, you talk to other smart people. You're involved in APHA and, and other pharmacy professional organizations. You know, you, you volunteer in your community, you, you do all those things and, and you read, okay, all these folks, they should be reading the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I read the Financial Times too. It's out of England and it's, it's global. You know, so mm-hmm. I don't read the whole thing every day. I look at the headlines. So what's going on in other industries impacts what we're doing. So really it's 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 strategy, vision, and then holding your getting the right team and holding them accountable so you actually execute it, right? So it's all about yeah. creating and implementing a vision. That's that's awesome. And I feel like you said that's what kind of what every CEO does, but what we'd really hope for the the CEO of a national uh, organization to do and to set a good, clear vision for pharmacists across the country. Um, and that's actually a pretty good transition into the next question. And what I before di- diving into like the specific issues, I just want to get your general perspective on um, what challenges and opportunities you think there are for community-based pharmacy practice and pharmacists within uh, the profession? Yeah, so the biggest challenge, no doubt, uh, for community pharmacists is payment. Okay, if all we're doing is getting paid less and less because PBMs, are, you know, the Columbus Dispatch, you know, right. all that information on spread and PBMs, they're just sucking all the products. So all you can do is go fast. And that is the biggest challenge. We need to be reimbursed for what we do. And, you know, again, out of Ohio, uh, uh, you're doing great things because you're, you're, you've got, so we've been trying to get provider status. That's the pinnacle, right? You got like, just like with, I'm a psychology major before I went to pharmacy Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that, that triangle. So for human self-actualization, self-actualization's up top, but you can't get there unless you've got food and shelter and all those things. So to us, Pharmacists, uh, provider status by the federal government, you know, Medicare is the pinnacle. That's pharmacy self-actualization. Uh, but we can't just, you know, we as a profession have failed to do that for a variety of reasons. We've been trying, and we're still fighting for that. And we may make some inroads now with COVID testing. But uh, but then you got the states, Ohio. Okay, I saw uh, the, the Antonio in OPA texted me. He's like, hey, the governor just called me. I watched the press release. Did you see that press release from your governor saying, I just talked to Ohio Pharmacy Association said, how can we get pharmacists paid to do COVID testing? So I was part of it. You were likely part of it. Uh, in Ohio State, uh, the provider status law we got passed a few years ago, right? Yeah. And that's Medicaid, okay? The, 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 when, it's, when it's the state, you know, because federal it is Medicare, states run Medicaid, even though it's a federal state program. And, but what happened? The, the, they passed law, but Medicaid never created billing codes. Now, 
Antonio's publicly shamed them with the Patriots of Columbus Dispatch and their okay. billing codes. So uh, the other part of that, those private insurance. And again, Ohio is leading the way. Stu Beatty, right? You know, Stu, he's back yep. there. He um he's he and Antonio have got United Healthcare and Santine, and they've got another one they're gonna announce. We're paying pharmacists for cognitive services. So community pharmacists, that's where it's at, right? That's where our future is. It's not by man drive-through windows and going faster. So the biggest challenge and opportunity is payment reform. Other opportunities to telehealth, but they're all sort of related to that, right? We have to be paid right. to do what we do. Because the reason we didn't get provider status is Congressional Budget Office, right? Any bill they have, they have to say, what would it cost? And I don't remember what the number was, several billion dollars to pay pharmacists to, to have provider status. But they can't count the offsets, right? We know in hospitals, in Ohio State, I hired hundreds of pharmacists. I had pharmacists every year, not because they were bringing in revenue, but because they use cost-effective medications, they keep readmissions away, people don't get their feet cut off with diabetes, you know, um, but so they couldn't count all that other cost savings. Now, I tell you what, United Healthcare and Centene are doing, we're seeing the pharmacies are paying in Ohio, they're reducing medical because you got the pharmacy benefit and the medical benefit. They're saying, okay, I'm paying pharmacists to do this. Guess what? Patients aren't going to the ED. We're saving money, you know? So that's that's where we need to be uh, focusing. The, the hospital model where you're reimbursed, reimbursed by DRG is a good model, right? You're, you're reimbursed, mm -hmm. not, it's not just paying for services, right? It's what's the total cost. Pharmacists will always save many times their salary in health outcomes and reducing the yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a leader myself, that's one of the things that I'm trying to focus on as well is, is thinking about how you can take that next step and be ready for provider status. Because, you know, you said that that's really the key, the pinnacle um, as pharmacists achieving provider status. So as a as a leader of APHA and a previous leader of a large health system, what do you think pharmacy leaders or pharmacists should be doing right now? to be prepared for those opportunities when they arise. You know, in Ohio, we're really close. So what can people start thinking about or what can they implement or what can they start doing to take advantage of those opportunities as soon as, you know, provider status happens or it's granted on the, the federal level? Yeah, and you know, I mean, so the folks in your residency class are obviously high performers who are in, you know, affiliated with the academic medicine and they have a lot of opportunities. A lot of our community pharmacists uh, are amazing. They've been doing their job for a long time, but they don't necessarily have that training and background. You know, so what, depending on what we're doing, we need to make sure that our pharmacists have appropriate training. Uh, you know, and that this is not a plug, but I mean, so APHA right now is saying, well, what kind of programming can we get to, you know, to help train pharmacists to, to, to do, you know, different services? Uh, and, you know, we're totally monitoring the stuff coming out of Ohio. And, you know, so what, how, you know, it's all about training and education and your folks are all going to either own community pharmacies or take leadership roles. You know, how do they look at staff development and, and how do they, how to create educational tools or figure out where their educational tools are. You know, it's just, um, uh, you know, doing community residencies is fantastic because your folks, everyone watching this is going to come out of the shoot ready to go. Right. I mean, uh, so how do we, how do we get the rest of the profession comfortable with that? And I tell you what, um, the two pharmacies that, uh, you know, talked to Stu, where he's got it, they weren't, uh, you know, residency trained folks doing that. They're just normal pharmacists and they're demonstrating pharmacy's value, right? I mean, right. the things they're doing are working, you know, so you don't have to have 15 master's degrees. It's a good thing to get a master's degree. 
Uh, <laughs> you don't have to do that to, to be able to be effective. Yeah, it sounds like going back to the basis of why we probably all got into this profession, which is to take care of patients and and you know show the value of pharmacists in the settings in which they work um, through the development of patient care services or justification of projects or you know different things like that. Absolutely. So one of the things that we've talked about in this course, and I feel like it's a common theme in the profession as well, is how do we bridge community-based practice with health system-based practice and, you know, bridge those two things together and promote pharmacists as a whole and um, not just, you know, we're not just acute care pharmacists, we're not just ambulatory care pharmacists, but how do we bridge that gap together? And maybe what are some best practices that you've seen to help the community-based practice and health system practice work together? Yeah, you know, so when I was being recruited for the APHA job, you know, a lot of the folks uh, came from a community pharmacy background. And I think they were probably thinking, what the hell does this hospital guy know about community practice? And what I said in my interview is, you know, I'm really like the APHA of health system pharmacists. Pharmacy. Right. I, yeah, I got whatever, 12 hospitals and how many countries, but, you know, I got 19 community pharmacies. I've got an amazing specialty pharmacy. I got home infusion pharmacy. And I made it all, that's what we did. I wrote an article that should be required reading for HSBA. Actually, I wrote a lot of articles that should be required reading. One of them with Antonio uh, on how we changed collaborative practice law. Uh, one of them on advocacy as a professional uh, uh, yep. obligation with Aaron Fox and uh, one on change management from the University of Minnesota, practice model change, but uh, stewardship of the pharmacy enterprise, okay? Yep. That's exactly what I talked about. How do you make all the desperate pieces and parts of it work together? When we got the Clinton Clinic, we had a bunch of silos, right? When I left, there's no silos. Everybody functioned and acted as a unit. Um, and uh, so so you bridge it. And, and so here's something we need to be able to do, something I saw the benefit of. And it's not real possible. It's possible. It's not happening. My pharmacist, the Cleveland Clinic, your pharmacist, Ohio State Ambulatory and Specialty, can do a better job because why? What do they have access to? Uh, the EHR. The EHR, right? Yeah. yeah. They, can, they can say, well, you know, you've had your last point was here, you know, what's not just a static list of drugs, but everything they're on and when they were going at every lab value, you know, so when someone comes in, so that's, that's where we're going to need to build a bridge between community and academic medical centers. And I know because I used to run one, uh, you know, hesitant, that was kind of like a secret sauce, right? I mean, that's what made our specialty pharmacy better than the other specialty pharmacies. Um, and we knew the physicians just like you do. But, you know, the more I'm out here in the, you know, the broader world, I'm like, we got to get Ohio State to give access to community pharmacies. Uh, now, you got to be cautious because there's some, you know, I represent all pharmacy. I represent chains. Some organizations uh, having access to your electronic health record might not have the best intentions, and they might be trying to peel your, your uh, other, your patients off and all their specialty medications. So certainly, uh, I think there's opportunity there, but I think community pharmacies, there's no downside, right? Let's right. share our electronic health record with community pharmacies, because uh, you, you can't argue. There's no better way, a pharmacist is much, anyone, a dietitian, you know, they're much better prepared if they can see what's going on. In order to improve health, pharmacists in the community have to have access to electronic health record. That's the yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, my background, I completed the MSHA, 
MS program at, with Kroger in Ohio State. And so we at Kroger did not have that access, but in my current position, that is one of the true benefits that I have is that the pharmacist that I lead can see all the patient records from their primary care visit to their inpatient stay. It's, it's tremendous the amount of things that you can do. So that's a, that's a great thought. And, you know, we have to work towards that, like you said. Absolutely. You know, so that's, that's, that would be uh, nirvana of bridges between community, uh, you know, and, and health systems. Absolutely. Yeah. So another thing transitioning a little bit is we've talked about a lot in this course about justification of community-based pharmacists, practitioners, and, and patient care services um, for community-based practice. Um, so how do you think as far future pharmacy leaders, they can promote some of these community-based services and the role of um, community-based pharmacists uh, services to patients or to administrators or legislators or media. I feel like there's a lot of different things that we have to, you know, really promote what pharmacists can do. And, um, but, but how do we do that? Yeah. You know, so since whatever it is, 19, I don't know, 60, what, 66 or 68, when Bill Smith put pharmacists, decentralized pharmacists that was UCLA was one of the California hospitals. And uh, that was the first time someone officially decentralized a pharmacist and put them somewhere. And, and guess what? They showed their value, right? And that's right. all I did. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. The Cleveland Clinic, I put pharmacists, I put a bunch of them in ambulatory physicians' offices, right? And then that was that was uh, with medicine physicians. And then I started putting them in specialist uh, offices. And you know, every time they demonstrate their value, they decrease costs, they improve quality. We have pharmacists practicing in ambulatory areas. It's all about sales and marketing, right? And that was, I am the chief cheerleader sales marketing agent for the professional pharmacy. I was for the department of pharmacy at Cleveland Clinic. And upstairs, I absolutely, every cool thing we did, I packaged it and put it in front of our C-suite. We need to do the same thing here. There are success stories, right? We need to find them and, and we need to leverage data. Now, now I tell you, there's our opportunity. We're starting to work with these big insurers and we can show we can show data medical benefit costs going down when you pay pharmacists more. That's the stuff that OPA, okay, Stu yeah. uh, and Antonio. We need to we need to every or before COVID. That's all you heard about when you're reading trade literature. It's like big data AI. Now we kind of forgot about that for now because you know COVID, but it's coming back. You know, so how do we? You can look, there's 500 studies. I made that number up. Um, anywhere you put a pharmacist, ICUs, EDs that bring costs down, right? They're going to do the same thing in community pharmacy. So, so that, and it's, you're teaching people how to do a business plan, right? It's like, do a literature search. If the, if the data isn't out there, work with OPA to get the data. And APHA, I mean, I'll put somebody on it with one of your residents, make that be a project. And we'll, we'll you know, that's win-win, right? I get free labor right. from your resident and they get a great experience. And then they get a publication because I have my own damn journal. We'll just publish it right here. It's so cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, you know, so that's 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 what we need to do. We need to demonstrate the value, and it's out there. We know it exists. Let's just get the data. And and, and we're having all these different states do cool things. My job needs to be help the states put it together, and then I take that right there. Okay, I have an amazing office. I'm looking at the Lincoln Memorial, Washington. I can see the Capitol. Nothing gets done, but I can see it. You know. Right. Take it over there. 
Yeah, that's showing the value. That's that's the key. What are some of the things? Because in this project, the end the end point is to um, justify or put together a, a position for like the C suite. So, what yep. are some things that you used to maybe take to the the C suite to justify the position um, to show the value? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's again it hasn't changed since the 1960s. We just the environment changes. Right. When we were putting, we had when I got to the clinic, we had two pharmacists embedded in medicine clinics. When I left between medicine special, I had like 28. Don't quote me on that number. Uh, but the same thing. I looked. I said, "Well, let's look where I've got pharmacists." Um, and guess what? The hemoglobin A1Cs were better. The time to get therapeutic uh, on on blood pressure was better. You know, so look at the data. It's there. And, and then, then package that. And the other thing we used for that was right now, you know, physicians at Ohio State and the Cleveland Clinic are overburdened, right? They got too much going on. So collaborative, we're like, okay, we can, the C-suite wants to have physicians see more patients. Like, okay, we're increasing access and they also want to increase access. Physicians get a focus on physician work. Pharmacists will manage complex hypertensive and diabetic patients. So it's just all that. It's the whole business plan is just just a list, and then a bottom right on a bottom right hand corner, ten percent. What's the value? You got costs, right? You got costs, and you got benefits. And anytime you take a pharmacist in, the benefits are going to be better financially, and then quality and safety. But but the C suite, quite honestly, they'll talk quality and safety, and they mean it. But right. it's all about dollars in this complicated world that, that we have to live in. Yeah, thank you for that. I feel like that's an added benefit to this conversation, just to hear from your perspective, some of those things that you would take to the C-suite and sounds like collaboration, you know, showing the data, showing the results of what pharmacists can do, just that overall value add. Um, well, you know, we're all a bunch of anal retentive pharmacists and executive summary, one pager, no C-suite person is going to read a 500 page document of graphs and charts. Now, you have that backup if they want it, but you, you got to put a business plan needs to be easy to and not okay. We're farmers, so they're gonna make the font really small. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Fit on one page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that leads into one of the last questions that I have, which is you've talked a lot about value. Um, and I feel like, you know, in the midst of the global pandemic, all the things going on with COVID-19, Pharmacists have truly been brought to the spotlight with what they can do and, and being seen as an essential healthcare provider all over the country. So how do you think this has changed practice in the last few months? And, and how can we use the momentum that we've gained with COVID and all the things that are going on to uh, move and achieve additional goals that we have for the profession? Well, and this is exactly, Dana, what we need to do. And I, I coined the term benevolent opportunism, I think in the article I quoted on advocacy with Aaron Fox. Opportunism sounds selfish, right? But benevolent opportunism, we're doing it for the good of society. Right now, pharmacists, like you said, okay, you know, a month ago, liquor stores, grocery stores, gas stations, and pharmacies were the only things that were open, right? right. People had no PPE, right? It's before we put plexiglass shields in, and they're going, and they're, you know, their own peril for them and their families, they're serving patients uh, and demonstrating the value of pharmacy. You know, people weren't running out of medications, right? Because the pharmacists kept the doors open. Uh, now, you know, strategy, I'm using that, and we're trying to get pharmacists paid for testing, right? Uh, so the last stimulus we had in there, 
it got taken out. AMA fought against it. Uh, so we're trying real hard. So uh, Ohio, right? You've got the governor, you know, pushing. So so this is a huge opportunity for us to demonstrate. And then then it's not just that. We want tests free. We want immunizations, right? Farmers to give every other. So it's like test now, treat. We you know we are. You know, I love the number. Ninety percent of the population was within five miles of a pharmacy. I, I I don't remember the number. I just saw an article today again about the physician shortage in I don't know four or five years, like one hundred and forty thousand physicians. There aren't enough. So AMA can fight us, okay? But there aren't enough of them, you know. So we we've got to you know step up. Um, so I think yes, people see that pharmacy is there for the right reasons. Um, now we're also getting some bad press, like. Was it Ellen Gabbard, the, the chaos in chain pharmacies? You saw that? Yeah. And that's yeah. not against chain pharmacies. That's against the reimbursement, right, and the PBMs. That's why that is. It, chain pharmacies, if they could make a buck by having pharmacists do cognitive services, they would do that. You know, it's capitalism, right? Um, so, our, you know, our value is there. Uh, let's, you know, take advantage of COVID, use it for good. And telehealth is another one, right? Uh, Probably Ohio State Cleveland Clinic was having trouble getting paid by insurance companies for telehealth before. Now that was the only thing you could do. Elective surgeries were all canceled. You couldn't even go to the hospital because we thought everyone would die if they went to the hospital. We'd all get COVID. You know, so we leveraged uh, telehealth. So telehealth is another good thing that we need to make sure that pharmacists can get paid for and continue to get paid for. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you said, like common theme throughout this is just continue to see the value of pharmacists, promoting the value of pharmacists. And like you said, taking advantage of those opportunities when the right opportunity presents itself, you've really got to jump in and move on that. And I think that's something I've learned throughout my career is, you know, taking advantage of those opportunities to help move the profession forward. And, and COVID, as terrible it is, is one of those things, I think, for pharmacists to help show the value that we have. Absolutely. Um, and so the last two questions I have are really directed for the students in this course. You know, as you know, many of them are future pharmacy leaders, or all of them are future pharmacy leaders. So what do you perceive um, as to be critical skills um, for those students to have or to learn over their next two years in residency to be successful in their career? Yeah, this goes back to those universal truths, Dana. Um, and this has been true since the dawn of time. It will be true in the future. Life is about relationships, okay? And how do you establish a relationship? You demonstrate credibility and trust, right? And how, how do you do that? Well, as a resident, you have to have a bias for yes, right? So if Dana says, hey, I need someone to work on this project, and you know, maybe it'd be a poster or an article, you say yes. You do a good job. Who do you look to, Dana, next time you have something important come along? That person who does a good job. Because universal truths have a bias for yes, and the, the one that follows that is success breeds success. Okay, my life is full of countless stories of how I had an opportunity, I took it, and then more success came. One of them, okay, two, the journal, uh, and then the media. A reporter called me uh, from the Wall Street Journal in 2014 and said, hey, Scott, are you seeing price increases in nitroprusside? Do you remember the egregious price increases for nitroprusside? And Aaron Fox and I were, were quoted in that. And, and when you quoted in the Wall Street Journal, I became, Aaron and I, the go-to people for people in the media. And that's also about relationships, right? You have to know what a reporter needs. A reporter needs someone's going to give them good data and they have deadlines, right? So, you know, and they have that bias for yes. So 
those these are universal truths that will never go away. Now you can get into you know what kind of skills related to technology, and you know we have to have data scientists. Your people don't necessarily need to be data scientists, but I don't need to be a data scientist. But I need to value data scientists. I need to hire data scientists. And I have to, you know, and and ultimately AI is going to have a huge impact. I, you're, you're, I would honestly, I'm, I'm not just, you know, the article I wrote, my web address, pharmacy, what the hell was it? I wrote so many articles, but um, uh, uh, I'll think of it here in a minute. Or it's like the most important paper I ever read. I, I read, read <laughs> Um, a calling, pharmacy is a calling, my web address last year. At the end of it, I put the top, I don't know, I usually do top 10, seven things that we need to look at to make the future better for pharmacy, uh, you know, AI, and, and, but so read those, your, your class needs to read that. And uh, it's also just a, a well-written paper that really highlights the history of pharmacy and the future of pharmacy. Um, yeah, so those are, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's about people, okay? I started with, it's about relationships. Okay. Yeah. And, and you can't get anything done. No one has to. I can send an email out, tell everybody to do everything. Are they gonna? No. If they think that what I'm doing is right for the profession for patients, you know, because I have integrity and credibility and trust, then they're gonna walk off cliffs for me, for us, for patients, not for me. But they do it for me because they know I'm doing it for the right reasons, right? Yeah, absolutely. No one works for me. A lot of people here work with me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, so it sounds like relationships, building credibility and trust, you know, taking advantage of opportunities, saying yes, um, all critical skills to have to be a successful leader in the profession. Just the other two, they go hand in hand. It's change management and calculated risks, right? You don't do stupid risky behavior, but it's all, you know, it's like you have to, to drive forward, you have to take calculated risks. Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are very important as well. And so the last question I have, and you've mentioned this a couple times, um, and I feel like it's important to touch on, um, but uh, the your article, Advocacy as a Professional Obligation, that is something I believe we, we will share with them. And, you know, I make all of my residents and um, pharmacists read that as well, because I feel like it's so important to be involved of your state and national pharmacy organizations um, and to advocate for, for the profession of pharmacy. So why do you feel that it's important for them to be a member and actively involved in um, organizations on the state and national level? Yeah, I, I, the reason is because I've lived it, right? I've seen the benefits of it. I have impacted, you have impacted, Bob Weber's impacted, Stu Beatty's impacted, Antonio Chacho's impacted. If, you know, these are uh, our volunteer organizations, right? And, you know, I mean, okay, I have paid staff here, but the vast majority of our members, you know, in our presence, you know, we're not paying them. Um, you know, but they do it for the greater good. And I've seen two things. We, you know, I'm, I'm trying hard looking down again at the Capitol, you know, to, to move federal law, but I'm also supporting the states and we can't do it without engaged members, okay? You have a professional obligation, all of you watching this, to support your organizations, right? APHA, a lot of people don't know, and APHA, quite frankly, historically has been a little timid. They haven't hawked their own horn. They're doing a lot of good work, but you know, it's a universal truth. If nobody knows about it, it didn't happen. I'm hawking the horn, just like I did at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm, I'm talking about the good things we're doing. We're going to do even better things. But members, you know, they got to support us. They got to come to meetings. They got to learn because and, and share best practices. The state, you guys run, you guys are one of the leaders. There's other good states, you know, Washington, Tennessee, 
a lot of good states, Iowa, Wisconsin, but again, volunteer organizations. If Antonio didn't have uh, physicians, you getting your physicians to go testify, because it looks self-serving when pharmacists go to testify for pharmacy laws, you know, but that came because APA or OPA uh, and OSHP, um, you work together to, to, you know, be volunteers. I've seen it. You can't change laws without actively engaged members. You can't share best practices without active engaged members. So, you know, be a member, uh, even if you, you know, certain times in your career, you got young kids, whatever, you can't be super involved in everything. You got to remember where your paycheck comes from, but right. still maintain, pay your dues because those help with lobbying and, and then volunteer when you can. Uh, but it, it's, it's critical. It's critical. And, you know, again, all the stuff in Ohio would not have happened without active members. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. Um, well, thank you so much. Any, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final parting words or anything for the students in this class? Uh, no, it's just, you know, be involved. Uh, you know, you'll see the future, you know, recognize those patterns, figure out where you're going to go. And, and you do have all, I'm, just, I'm looking at you, but I'm looking at all the students. You have a professional obligation with the article, be involved, join APHA, because we're going to be fighting for you. We can't do it alone, okay? I need members that I can call on to send emails and grassroots advocacy and talk to senators. Um, you know, so you can't sit and complain about the situation unless you're joining and fighting the fight. You have no right to complain about how things are if you're not willing to put money where your mouth is and fight the fight. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate all of your insight and contributions to the program. Um, and it was a pleasure getting to speak with you today. So thank you so much. Very nice, Dana. Thank you.